Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here to worship with the believers that meet at Mabel Chapel and the visitors. And to your visitors, I'm a visitor also. So let's worship together here this morning. I'd like to begin with a question and... I guess I would encourage you not to answer in the affirmative, just think about it. How many of you feel you have your priorities straight in life? This morning's message title is, Life is Good When We Have Our Priorities Straight. It's part of a series of messages I'm preaching through my home congregation this is the fourth message in the series. The first message we looked at, life is good when we recognize the sovereignty of God in all of life. Next, we looked at life is good when Christ is being formed in us. And we looked at the life of Christ. And then we focused on Philippians where it says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And we looked at how he humbled himself and became obedient the mind of Christ. And I'm amazed. An interesting study sometime, uh, look at all the verses in the Bible that have some reference to the mind of Christ in the New Testament. It's a calling in our lives to have the mind of Christ. And then the third message uh, was from Beatitudes, where we're, I mean, not, it's from the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll start out again today. But the third message is life is good when we place ourselves in the way of blessing. And we looked at the Beatitudes and the uh, the steps in the sequence of humility that God calls us to in embracing the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, etc. And today then we'll pick up with the verses that follow that and look at priorities in life. I invite you to Matthew, the fifth chapter, and begin reading at verse 10. Actually, I'll just quickly read the preceding verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And I'll stop there and... In the previous message of this series, and then this morning, uh, I picked up uh, in verse 10. And I'll read verse 10 through verse 26. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost his savior, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till it all be fulfilled. 
Whatsoever therefore, whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these least commandments and shall teach them to men also, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, and the King James adds without a cause, shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, and first be reconciled to thy brother, and come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art on the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou shalt be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Going back to the verses where we began, verse 10 through 12, contain interesting and encouraging words. Blessed. Rejoice. Be exceeding glad. Those are positive words. Those are words that we like to think about, that we like to embrace, that we like to have flowing out of our laps. But it's in the context of suffering, rejection, and ridicule. Is that a dichotomy? Is that something that doesn't fit together in our minds? Blessing, rejoicing, being exceeding glad in the face of suffering, rejection, persecution, ridicule. How many of you enjoy that? How many of you enjoy being ridiculed and and made fun of? In this context, for your faith, for your belief, for your convictions, for what you stand for, what's important to you. Do you enjoy that? Do we rejoice in that? Is it possible? Would it have something to do with our priorities if it isn't flowing, if it isn't coming out of our lives as it should? Turn with me over to the book of Acts. A number of scriptures to look at, although I'm looking at Sermon on the Mount, attempting to tie in all the other facets of Scripture that complement and contribute and help us to understand. Acts, the fifth chapter. And we're considering rejoicing in the face of adversity. Acts, the fifth chapter and verse 40 and 42. And to him they agreed when they had called the apostles and beaten them. And this was where that the apostles uh, were being persecuted for their faith and for their testimony of Jesus. Verse 40, And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. 
We goes on to the next chapter. It says, In those days the number of disciples multiplied. So there was multiplication of believers. But in the context of, of persecution, uh, here it was Peter and the other disciples with him, apostles with him, who were threatened and then let go and told not to teach anymore in the name of this man, Jesus. And it says, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It doesn't say they were rejoicing that they were experiencing pain, but they were counted worthy to suffer for their Lord and Savior, for His name. So what had taken place in the lives of these apostles that gave them joy and perseverance in the face of persecution? This was Peter. Peter, the man who had stood up and boldly said before Jesus' suffering, he said, I'll die with you. And before the sun came up the next morning, he denied his Lord three times. What had taken place? What had changed in this man's life? Let's look at 1 Peter. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll jump down to verses 12 through 19. Peter writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Here we have the mind of Christ again. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For in times past, for in the time past of our life, may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excesses of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of right, speaking evil of you. Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For this cause was the gospel preached also unto them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And it goes on to talk about having love and hospitality for one another. Let's drop down to verses 12 through 19. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. But if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, and on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And he goes on to talk about not suffering as an evildoer, but suffering for what is right. And in verse 19, Therefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Here's Peter. A man who we see a, a amazing transformation of life as the Holy Spirit came in and took all that exuberance and all that energy and channeled it in to working for the kingdom and building the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, 
For as much as then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I don't proclaim to fully understand the last part of that verse. But I believe it's part of our of our transformation and our sanctification and our the change of our lives in Christ Jesus. That as we are done with the life of, of sin, being directed and controlled by our sinful nature, and we're following the Spirit of Jesus Christ in our hearts and our lives through the Holy Spirit, we can be armed with the same mind, with the same attitude of Christ Jesus, and we can take a different view of ridicule and suffering and rejection. And like the apostles who went before us, we can rejoice that we are counted worthy to identify with Jesus in the rejection that he experienced. And that's where we see Peter. By the time we get to Acts chapter 5, he has comprehended this. And he's rejoicing when he went out from the council, from the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that he was worthy to suffer and inspired and empowered to go back and continue to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. How did Peter get there? The scripture tells us that after the rooster crowed, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter came face to face to his own, uh, the reality of his own sinful nature, the reality of his inability to resist Satan and his own power, and the reality of his need of brokenness before Christ and before God and the filling of the Spirit in his life. And I've often wondered what Peter's days and nights were like between Jesus' crucifixion and when Jesus met them on the seashore. I wonder if he could identify with the psalmist when he said uh, uh, the roaring of his bones in the night and, and the restlessness and all that. I can't quite quote it right now, but I wonder if Peter, I think Peter could identify with that. And then Peter, uh, or Jesus met the disciples there after they'd went fishing, and he talked to Peter on the seashore, and three times he said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. You, you know that I love you. Uh, feed my sheep. And Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my lambs. We don't see this in the King James, but other translations it shows it more clearly. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. And Peter went forward in his life and did that. He was a changed man, a very changed man. And I believe Peter's life was much better after the change than it was before. Life is good when we have our priorities right in proper order. So what should our priorities be? What does the Scripture teach us that our priorities should be? 
Let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Begin at verse 33. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. But when the Pharisees had heard that he'd put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked a question, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and the great and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And over in the account in Mark 12, it says that the scribe or the lawyer responded back to him and repeated what Jesus said. And Jesus commended him and said, you're not far from the kingdom. Because he had agreed with Jesus' statement. He said, you're not far from the kingdom. Understanding the kingdom of Christ, of which we are a part as Christians. And as I've studied and meditated uh, in preparation for this message and since then, what is important in life? What should our priorities be? And especially, and I don't want to get back into the sermon I just preached here at the beginning of January, but especially as we've studied the book of Revelation and the seven churches, I keep coming back to this passage as the priorities in life. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And if we do that, what will we have between us and the Lord? We'll have a relationship, right? And he said, the second is likened to it that you love your neighbor as yourself. And if we love our neighbor as ourself, we will have a relationship with our neighbor. Right relationship, right? And there's nothing else I can say other than that the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings that we just studied about this morning said, these are the two most important things. On it hang all the law and the prophets. And more than that, on it hangs, I believe, our salvation experience. Because there were churches that were addressed in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, they were doing a lot of good things and right things. But the one had left their first love, the Lord. Others were doing other things that were, to some degree, a violation of these two commandments. Loving the Lord and loving their brother, as they should. Unless we can grasp and internalize this concept, we will not experience the peace, joy, and blessing that God intends for His people to experience in this life. Our relationship with God must be the most important pursuit of our lives. And our relationships with our fellow human beings are directly connected to and flow out of the relationship we have with the Lord. We cannot separate the two. Is it possible for Brother John Swartz and I to have animosity between us and both get up and give testimony of being right with the Lord? No. 
I don't think so. And Jesus said, the two most important things, the, all the law and the prophets, the Ten Commandments and everything coming up through. And may I add the Sermon on the Mount. Love for God and for our fellow man. Let's turn over. Well, let's turn back. <laughs> let's turn back to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And let me, maybe I should have read more. There's a context. Uh, we discussed these verses somewhat in a discussion period at Minister's Week, but we didn't talk about context. Uh, the context of these verses is a good tree bringing forth good fruit, and an evil tree bringing forth evil fruit, and by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon the rock. And he goes on to talk about that story you know well. The house that stood in the face of storm. Jesus said, I never knew you. I never knew you. And these people said, but Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name and cast out devils and done many wonderful works? He said, depart, I never knew you. Let's go over to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all His holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. Can you imagine that scene? We just got a glimpse this morning in, in our Sunday school lesson, of Lord of Lord and King of Kings. It says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and His holy angels with Him, and shall sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then this Lord of Lords and this King of Kings and all the radiant splendor of his glory speaks. Then the king shall say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. See, we just looked at a passage where they said, Lord, we cast out devils. We prophesied. We did many wonderful things. And he said, I never knew you. Now we have the exact opposite. He's saying, you clothed me. You fed me. You visited me. You did all these things. You came in when I was in prison. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hunger and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And then we could go on and read, and he says exactly the same thing to those 
on the left, but he said you didn't do it. Coming back to the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. A man asked Jesus one day, who is my neighbor? He told him a story. And at the end of the story, we concluded that everyone whom we see that hath need is our neighbor. Do we have our priorities right in life? Would Jesus say, I never knew you? Or would he say, blessed are you? Come in because you've clothed and fed and you've ministered to me. All right, let's move on. Another question. Why does the person who is in a right relationship with God risk his life to tell others about God? Why do we do that? Why are we called to do that? 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We could read a lot of this chapter. I'll just give a brief overview. The first number of verses talks about we being in this earthly house, this physical body that's in a, in a constant state of, of growing older and decaying and wearing out. But we're desiring to be in this heavenly body, clothed upon from heaven. And we groan, we're burdened in this physical body. We're looking forward to a heavenly body in Christ Jesus. Verse 9. Therefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. Picking up again on the thought, depart from me, I never knew you, or welcome, come in. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. What inspires us then to go out and to share with others in the face of resistance? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest unto your conscience. For we commend ourselves... For we commend not ourselves again to you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is your cause, for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because thus we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And it goes on to talk about the fact that we no longer view things the way we once did. But we now see everyone as a person who needs the Lord. And we have a message to share. And we're inspired. We're, we're more than inspired. We're, uh, we're persuaded of the need to go because we know the terror of the Lord. We know what awaits the unsaved. And we know the glory that awaits those who are saved. And he goes on to say, whether we're beside ourselves, whether some think we're 
out of our mind or not, don't focus on that. Verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. What are our priorities? To love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and our neighbors, ourself. We're called to love and to serve. And what does the love of Christ do to us? It constraineth us. And that's an interesting word to study. It's a word in the Greek that, that has the idea of, of directing us and holding us in, at the same time propelling us forward. It directs us and propels us at the same time. Uh, one commentator put it this way. It says, it's the idea of being in a throng of people moving down a sidewalk in a big city and it's so tight you can't move to the right or to the left. You simply have to flow with the crowd. He said that's the love of Christ containing us, directing us, and propelling us forward. Knowing God and knowing the reality of eternity constraineth us to share the gospel, even in the face of persecution. Back to our text verses in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. To profess Christianity and yet to not be salt and light in the world, this is verses 13 through 16, is to be of no value to God and to His kingdom or His purpose. God does not intend for us to live out our lives in isolation. He said, let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works. And I'm not here to cast stones at, at people who isolate themselves to pursue a closer relationship with God, but we can't stay there. We can't live in a monastery our whole life and be salt and light. Jesus was out with the needy. Verses 17 through 20 talks about he's not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he goes on to talk about keeping the commandments. And then he says something that I would believe made the crowd stop and listen closely. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, these folks were the religious people. They not only attempted to keep the law, but they added little details. And, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you shall no wise enter the kingdom. I think the people stopped and began listening even closer than they had been already. What was the focus of the Pharisees' attempt at righteousness. A strict adherence to a code of ethics, but not a pursuit of a relationship with the lawgiver. They had a passion for the law, but did they have a passion for the lawgiver? God. In their zeal for keeping the law, I believe they had lost compassion for those around them. 
fact, it's quite clear. <laughs> there was a distinct difference between Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. And one of the distinct differences, two distinct differences. One, Jesus had a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And number two, Jesus had compassion. Jesus looked on the crowds and he was moved with compassion. We don't read a lot about compassion when the Pharisees would drag someone to Jesus to pronounce judgment. Jesus said, He was without sin, cast the first stone. They did not have the two things that Jesus said was most important. And an unquenchable love and pursuit of God and love for their fellow man. Jesus brings it really close home, verses 21 and following, how to relate to our fellow men and women who were created in the likeness and image of God. 21. Ye have heard it said of them, ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, time and again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard, but I say, and he raises the bar from the law that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And I read that according to the original. I left out without a cause. That whosoever is angry with his brother sh shall be in danger of the judgment. What does that mean? The word anger here translated feelings of frustration. Feelings of frustration and exasperation. Inward feelings unexpressed. Inward feelings of frustration and exasperation toward our fellow human being. The idea of a, a sort of a localized judgment. He said, if you do that, you shall be in danger of the judgment, the local tribunal judgment. And then we step it up. Jesus steps it up. And he says, Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, the Sanhedrin. Now this is going beyond inward feelings. This is an expression. Very similar inward feelings, but now they're expressed. And it's the idea of an empty one. Someone who just isn't too bright. And you say to him, you just aren't real bright. You express your anger and frustration. It's an attack on one's intellectual abilities. It's a step worse than anger not expressed. And he says, if you do that, you really ought to go before the Sanhedrin. But how about the next one? But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And these people understood that because outside down over the hill beyond Jerusalem was a fire that burnt continuously where the garbage and the waste of the city was dumped. And they understood that concept. But Jesus is also understanding the concept of eternal judgment. What does this word mean? Thou fool. Again, it's expressed. Whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. 
The word is moros. We get our word moron from it. Other words that we would use that would fall in the same category would be dull, stupid, worthless, scoundrel, idiot. And Jesus is saying, if that's your attitude expressed towards your fellow man, you're in danger of losing your salvation, eternal judgment. See, as I've meditated on this, I've been challenged time and again that our fellow man and fellow woman are created in the likeness and image of God. And our attitude toward them and our expressions about them is an expression about someone who's created in the likeness and image of God. Whom God loves. Whom Jesus died for. Whom God is working in their life to woo Him to Himself. And if He, if he has already wooed Him to Himself, He's continuing to work in our lives to, to make us more conform to the image of His Son. So God is working in, in everyone's life in one way or the other. And Jesus is saying, get rid of the anger, get rid of the attitudes, and by all means, don't speak evil of your fellow man. And now since Jesus walked them through that, and I believe they understood what we just looked at, he takes them one step further and says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest thy brother hath aught against thee. Oh, now I'm actually responsible for that brother's feelings toward me, if he's upset. If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, and first be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. Oh. So... I'm on the way to church this morning and I remember that I've offended Brother Dave. So there's a scripture saying I have a responsibility before I stand up here and preach to go and make amends before I worship. I believe it does. And I have here in my notes, right relationships must precede acceptable worship. Right relationships must precede acceptable worship. Isn't that what the Scripture is telling us, Brother John? Jesus is saying that if you have offended someone, you go and make peace, then come and worship. Conclusion. Life is good when we have our priorities in proper order. I recently had a conversation with someone. They were telling me that they... They were evaluating themselves and they're saying that I'm a failure. They're saying that about themselves. And that was based upon their financial standing and a number of other things uh, about worldly standards. I'll put it that way. How would you respond to that? How would you respond to that? Well, I'll tell you how I responded. I prayed a while before I responded. And I said... You know, I think we have a problem here in America. We have our priorities all crossed up. Because we're not a failure based upon our lack of acquisition and accumulation of things. 
We're only a failure when we fail to accept the provision of salvation through Jesus Christ. And too often, I think we subconsciously have embraced a mentality that says failure and success does depend upon position in life. And therefore, we sacrifice relationships for position and things. And Jesus is saying, you don't do that. You keep God first and your relationship with your fellow man a close second tied into that. And leave it to God to lead in everything else. Life is good when we have our priorities in proper order. Eternity will be good if we have our priorities in proper order in this life. Jesus said, these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, all your strength, everything you have. And the second is likened to it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells us through the pen of John, By this shall all men know you are my disciples indeed, if we do what? If you have love one for another. The proof of the authenticity of our Christianity is our interpersonal relationships that flows out of our relationship with God. Can we have a song?